0: So I've been uh, traveling an unusual amount for me personally. Um, Every single month so far this year, and kind of for the foreseeable um, next couple months, I'm on a plane somewhere, going somewhere, which is like a volume much higher for me. A lot of you are like, give me a break, I travel every week, but I'm going like, that's a lot for me personally. And I've, um, I really like being on a plane because it really, it makes the people sitting next to you—they can't go anywhere. You know, like you're—you're you're like locked in. Like it's this opportunity, and they can't escape. And so, um, one of the one of the things you notice is like I'm not very good at small talk. I'm working on it. I do think that small talk is very important it's a way of establishing connection before you establish intimacy and so small talk's important I believe that but on a plane you don't need it because they're stuck next to you you know you can just (laughs) skip that they can't really go anywhere and if they do like the marshals will tell them you have to sit next to that guy and so you're like welcome back now let's keep talking and so so it's one of the things I've noticed is um so I have this desire to have these great conversations with people, but then I noticed this, that five flights in a row, the people next to me were drinking a lot, you know, and, and so it was not because of me, but it was <laughs> definitely a little bit because of me. You know, it's like sitting down, oh, where are you headed? Oh, St. Louis, oh, nice, are you visiting family there? Yeah, tell me about your relationship with your father. And they're like, oh, gosh, you know, like, stewardess, please, you know, like I need, And and I just kind of began to notice a pattern where Seth kind of has these, Deep dive conversations are right off the bat, and people uh, tend to order more alcohol than if they were sitting somewhere else. You know, it's, I don't, I don't cause the behavior, but I do somewhat help predict it. So, that, so I started noticing this. I'm going like, man, maybe I should just ease up a bit. Maybe not everybody's interested in having a conversation with me. And so the other day on a Friday night, I was actually on a plane back, and I decided, you know what, I'm not gonna talk to this guy. I'm just gonna sit here, read my book, and I'll pray for him or something, and if he talks to me, then great, and so I'm sitting there reading, I close the book, and as soon as I close the book, he goes, hey, so are you one of those Jesus guys, <laughs> yeah. and so we're like, oh, this worked out nice, um, when, like, it's like when the fish baits its own hook, you know, like, here we go, so you wanted this, remember that, you wanted this conversation, and so we start talking, and anything, what, what ends up happening uh, a lot of times is we end up talking, when people go like, oh, yeah, what do you do, what do you do, blah, 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 like, I'm a pastor, and they go, oh, that's interesting, you know, like. All of a sudden, they have interesting things to do. Scrolling through Facebook, even though they're not connected to internet, you know, just <laughs> something besides talk to this guy. But whenever we end up landing and having a meaningful conversation, it ends up going something like this. Um, explain to me why Christians are less like Jesus than they should be. How come this guy on TV speaks for Christians, and yet he acts like this. How come this guy on TV? There's a lot of people on TV they want explanations for. Or my cousins are like this. Is that what Jesus wants? Or my this one barista I know. you know? Or this this one interaction I have with a Christian. What's the deal with these people? And it, it's like nine times out of ten, I have a serious conversation with someone who's not a Christian, and it ends up going there. How come... Christians are so unlike Christ. And so what do you say in those situations? What do you, how do you answer that? Because if Pete like, well we are the body of Christ so there should be some resemblance but yet not. Where do we go? How do we have that conversation? What does it look like to do this? And so one of the things that I did on Friday at least, was I took them to this text we're looking at, because Paul here in this text actually is pretty, sneakily critical of the church. Now, it's, it's, not, it's not difficult to critique the church. A lot of people think that they are this modern prophets because they just know how to critique the church. But the church is very easy to critique. All you need to know is one person, and it's easy to critique the church because none of us are Christ-like. None of us are without sin. I mean, we're all becoming more Christ-like, but we're all a messy group of people. And so someone, I say, so tell me about the things that they're bad at. Tell me tell me about these Christians who aren't like Christ. Tell me about them. And they start telling me about them, and I go like, oh, that's it? There's more in here than that. Let me tell you even more. And so usually when people say, like, oh yeah, those Christians are sinners, I go like, yeah, and it's probably worse than you think. And I take them to this text. So for example, look with me. um, Let's just read verse... Thirteen. So here's here's kind of Paul's example to me of being sneakily critical. So mostly he's prescribing, here's these gifts, and here's what they're going to do for the church. Here's how we're going to tr- build the church up. But it's kind of like um, when you offer someone a shower, like, hey, did you want to take a shower? It's like, that's because I need a shower. That's why you offer that. You know, like, there's no, like, why? Oh, no reason. I just thought maybe you need a shower. You know, there's there's no, like, there's a clear thing here. And so verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. So, what that means is that we lack unity, so we need to attain unity. So instead of the, Paul just saying, hey, the church is unified, he's saying, hey, you guys can work on unity. He's a very, he's a very uh, constructive critic here. But then also he says, into the knowledge of the Son of God. So when you lack knowledge, you are ignorant. So Paul's saying, yeah, the church is ignorant, church is disunified. And there's actually in this text um, a list of pretty negative things that if you take the opposite of what Paul says, this is kind of Paul's honest description of the church. It says the church is incompetent, unassembled, disunified, ignorant, immature, falling short, childish, unstable, and gullible. So usually when people say like, oh yeah, like I would become a Christian, but Christians are sinners. I said, well, tell me about their sin. And they tell me it, and I go like, oh, I have a longer list than you do. And one of the things I want to do is point out and highlight to them how honest the Scriptures are about the present state of dysfunction in the church, even though these people are saved and have the Holy Spirit. Even though. It's not like you get saved, problems are gone. Some of you are like, duh. But the honesty of the Scriptures, I think, invite us to be an honest people about the present state of our own maturity, the present state of our own sin. Even last week, I was up in Flagstaff, and I was talking about the honesty of the scriptures. And one of the things it says here is, in the previous text, that we have to bear with one another. I don't know if anybody's ever told you that, like, hey, I'm bearing with you, but that's not a compliment. (laughs) Like, sometimes our culture thinks that tolerance is a compliment. It's just not. Hey, I'm tolerating you. Like, oh, thanks? Like, what do you say? Like, I'm being tolerated? Like, What about me? Like, that's just not a positive. But the scriptures are so honest about how dysfunctional the church is such that we're just a mess of people. We're we're not perfectly like Jesus yet. None of you are. I am not. We're all in process. And this recognition that we are a messy, broken people is important for us to maintain. Otherwise, when you hear people say like, hey, let me give you some criticism about the church. We have this like defensive things like, no, Christians are fine and good and we should just, but rather if we really believe in grace, we should be okay with saying like, yeah, the church is a mess. So actually we're gonna, this is an exercise here. So I'm a mess and I want you all to confess with me that we're all messes, all right? On the count of three. One, two, three. I am a mess. How'd that feel? That feel good? It feel right? It's the truth. You know, there's different degrees of messiness in this room, but the messiness is still certain. And so what we're going to see in this text is the fact that The church has work to do. The church has a job to do. That the church, we as a people, Redemption Gateway, that even though we are recipients of God's grace and recipients of the Holy Spirit, there is still a messiness that's present in us that we're called to work to eradicate even though it will never be fully eradicated until Christ's second coming. So here's the big idea in this text. We are a mess, but God heals us using us. He heals us using us. We're a mess. I hope that we all this morning, on the one hand, make peace with our messiness, meaning recognizing that it's a present, enduring reality, but also that we recognize that there's work to be done that we must consciously engage in and participate in to try to help the church be a more faithful representation of who Jesus is in the world. Let's all pray together, and then I'll walk through this text. God, I'm grateful that you're good to us. I'm grateful that your spirit doesn't just save us, but it sanctifies us. That is, it's present with us, walking with us, calling us towards holiness. I hope that this morning we can be Further recipients of your grace, and recognize in a meaningful way what our role is in helping um, alleviate the pain in this room. Amen. So the first thing we look at is this mess. So I'm going to kind of walk through this text backwards a little bit, and uh, you can bear with me on that. So, um, verse 14: We are a mess. Verse 14. So the whole purpose of God giving these gifts to the church was, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children. Now, so elsewhere in the scriptures we're told to be like children. Here we're told to not be like children. So we should kind of pause and think about what that means. So when Jesus tells people to be like children, he's referencing their inquisitiveness. He's referencing their trustingness. That children trust their parents, and children ask their parents questions all the time. That's children in a positive sense. Here is children in the negative sense, that they're unstable and gullible. So that so we may no longer be like children. Now, what Paul just said is he all just sneakily told us we're all childish. That should sting a little bit because it's not a compliment but that's a present part of our reality. That we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves. So I'm on Instagram, forgive me, but there is a, an account that I follow that it's hilarious to me. My wife thinks it's childlike, but I think it's hilarious. It's called Kook Slams, K-O-O-K Slams. It's all these newbies at the beach getting demolished by waves. I think it's so funny. Just people walking on the line, they're like right at the breaking point, and then just like, to the face, hit the ground. And then a lot of times what happens is actually like really even worse than that because there be people who like playing in the waves and they get hit real bad and they fall down, and then they're like all disoriented, and then they get up and they're like trying to catch their breath, but they're exhausted. And so then another wave comes and it drag- drags them back in, and then they kind of waddle out and it drags them back in, and there's this like real um, punishing nature to it. It's actually a game that me and some of my high school friends would play whenever we go down to Mexico. We'd play the game called Sit at the Breaking Point of the Waves and see who lasted the longest. It was so you get salt water in the nose, salt water in the eyes, salt water in the ears. It was a great vacation game, it was really positive. If you just it 's a big machismo thing, um, but you, it would pummel you, it would exhaust you, it would beat you down you know even some of these like videos on the things are, where these people like need to be helped out and there 's still people laughing at them, getting smashed by waves if you 've ever had a traumatic event with a wave, you know what this is like, and if you are having a triggering moment because of this traumatic wave right now i 'm sorry, but this is exactly what Paul is referencing is the fact that nature can be pretty harsh you know nature 's tends to be a positive word now. Oh, it's all natural. Well, getting demolished by waves is all natural and it's still a pretty negative experience. And so, Paul is saying here how you get beaten down by these waves, these waves of doctrines, cunning craftiness and scheming deceitfulness that they come at us like these torrents again and again and again. And just like when you're beaten up by the waves on the beach, it's disorienting, it's exhausting, There's a sense of defeat. I'm not as powerful as I thought I was. Sometimes you're blindsided, you're kind of going about pretty peacefully and then all of a sudden there's this terror. We live through those types of things in our culture all the time and it's exhausting, it's tiring, it beats us down. There's a very graphic depiction here of what it feels like to be in the assaults of the waves of the culture's teaching. You know, you can't really watch the news for more than a couple days at a time without hearing about some rich and famous celebrity deciding that life is hopeless and taking their own life. Because they're being tossed... To and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Rapper Post Malone this week got a tattoo on his face, not recommended, but it says, always tired under his eyes. Successful, rich, famous. And now, tiredness and feeling beat up is a badge of honor in our culture. Man, if you could just be busy to the point of absolute exhaustion, man, you must be important. And this, these waves of doctrine and human cunning and deceitful schemes are some of the reasons why it's important for us as a people to be readers and interpreters of the culture around us because if we don't recognize the ways in which these things are assailing us and coming after us and beating us down we will become accidentally or on purpose sucked up into these false systems of teaching. The biggest banner of false doctrine that I see in our present cultural context is what I would just label in a big term as consumerism. Consumerism is this almost religious level belief that what I want, my impulses, my desires, I should get. That I, like part of my identity is that I am a consumer. I want this, I should get it. I want this, I should get it. This has many implications in many spheres of life. There's economic implications. There are sexual ethic implications. There are church participation implications. And really, if you think about it, consumerism is this more and better and better and faster. It's this trending upward to the right type of graph. Such that even the last hundred years, if I was going to graph for you the amount of type 2 diabetes, it goes like this consumerism. If I was going to graph for you the amount of debt that Americans have, it goes like this, consumerism. If I was going to graph for you the number of churches that people jump around to and from, it goes like this. If I was going to graph for you the number of sexual partners people have had, it goes like this. All of this has to do with the same heartfelt, deep belief that what I want, I should get now. And if you tell me to question my trust of my impulses, I'll label you something hateful and make sure you can't get a job in the industry. And what's really sad is that there are so-called Christian teachers on TV publishing books who are encouraging faithful Bible- believing Christians to go along with the culture's deceitful schemes. This is demonic of the highest level, whether it's these People on TV like there's just so you know like if you're watching preachers regularly on TV Generally speaking you shouldn't But some guy on TV a couple weeks ago give me 54 million dollars for my private jet for Jesus nonsense But what he appeals to is a consumeristic impulse. Hey, if you give me money, you'll get more money What do you want? You want all your desires validated? Well, guess what if you give my ministry? I'll help you validate your desires Similarly, you have people writing books, a guy named Matthew Vines, undermining and questioning the entire Bible's teaching on sexual ethics, saying, oh, give me a break. There's only six verses that condemn that. How serious can those six verses be? To which I respond, there's only one verse that says God is love. So that's not how it works. <laughs> you don't do theology by counting Bible verses. That's not how any of this works. But what's happening is there's these teachers and leaders, even within the church, who, are, who they themselves have been swept up by these human, cunning, crafting, deceitful schemes, and they're calling Christians to come into it with them. They're waist deep in the sinking sand saying, oh, it's fun in here. Come join me. And it's just exhausting. The more media you consume, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, fill in the blank, whatever it is, the more you personally experience and feel this tossing about to and fro. I have friends who are same-sex attracted. One who's really close with me. And he believes what the Bible says about marriage. But the presence of all the assaulting false teaching, this this waves of human doctrine that's in the culture all around him is hard for him. It's harder for him now than it was fifty years ago to obey because of all this deceitful cunning in our culture. All these voices, all these reinterpretations, all these, yes, but have you considered? And it's tiring. And many of you in this room right now feel tiring. Because there's so many voices to listen to. So many articles to read. So many four ways to. So many... There's such a production of information and it's just tiring. Because what we're called to is pretty simple. Listen and obey. But instead there's this discussion and Debilitating. And I just want you all to recognize that you are at risk to be swept up, pummeled by the waves. Some of you already feel tired. Some of you are unaware of it. But I just want you to recognize that these deceitful schemes, what that means is that they tend to work. They tend to catch you and drag you in. Spiritual kook slams. You get hit, dragged back in. It's tiring, it's exhausting, it's beat up. And so we're a mess. So when people say, man, the church is a mess, I go, yeah, absolutely, totally. What else is new? It's been a mess for 2,000 years. It's gonna keep being a mess. But we're tired, we're beat up. It's difficult. So what's the, what's the solution here? And so here's the solution. God uses us to heal us. So read with me verses seven through 11. This text is a little bit um, confusing. So I'm just gonna read it and then try and uh, restate it in a way that's helpful. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So each one of us is every individual. Up to this point, Paul's main emphasis has been on the corporate or communal dimensions of salvation, that you all were made alive together in Christ. But now he's saying each one, every single one of you, were given a gift. Grace was given to us as a measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Parentheses in saying he ascended what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things so that's a kind of confusing text here's the essence of it christ was in heaven he descended to the earth he went back up to heaven he sent the spirit with gifts Essentially, just like Moses went up on the mountain and he came back down with the instruction of the Lord, so also Christ went up to heaven and now he sent the Spirit down in his place to give these gifts to people. So Moses came down with the instruction of God, the Spirit comes down with these gifts that he's giving to the church. And here are these gifts. Verse 11, and he gave. So this is actually one of multiple times that Paul is listing out spiritual gifts in the church. None of the times he lists out spiritual gifts is it meant to be exhaustive, but rather it's meant to be illustrative, meaning here's an example of some of the gifts. And so we shouldn't say, oh, here are these four slash five gifts. These are the five gifts. Rather, Paul is demonstrating here are some of the gifts that are out there. Um, These gifts are apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers so the gifts are people and these people are given to the church to equip the saints for works of ministry so remember back in verse 7 each one of us is a gift given to the church to equip the saints for work of ministry for building up the body of Christ so the thrust of this passage is Christ comes he establishes his church he goes up on high in the ascension sends the spirit at Pentecost and he gives these gifts by the spirit to people And each person is a gift. It's just a question here. How many of you are comfortable saying, I am a gift to this church? It's awkward, right? If I said, hi, my name is Seth. I am a gift to each of you. You'd be like, it just feels icky. You know, it feels, it's a yucky sounding phrase. I'm a gift to you. Be grateful. You know, there's like. Ooh. Because a lot of times we think that humility is actually just um, hating yourself. Kind of like worm. You know, I'm nothing. I'm dirt. I'm a sinner. I'm, the world be better without me. I don't need. You know. Just this downer thing. That's not humility. Self hatred is not humility. Humility is actually like awareness of yourself as a designed person by God, not thinking of yourself as God, not thinking of yourself as less than created, but to be created, to be made, formed, that God intentionally wove each one of us together, that we uh, are a designed person. And so the text here is saying that each one of you is a gift to this church. So I want us as a people, as Redemption Gateway, to be okay with this idea that I am a gift to the rest of these people, and they are a gift to me. Now, you want to be careful with how you say that, because it's awkward and it feels weird, but every single one of you is a gift to the rest of these people. It's interesting how the way that God is achieving unity in his church is by giving a diversity to his church. I hear stories like this on a semi-regular basis here and I, these are like my favorite types of stories where there are people here with meaningful relationships and the only way they got them is they showed up on a Sunday, someone sitting next to them, welcomed them, got to know their name, take them out to lunch and helped them get connected to other people. Like the systems, the formal structures of the church, those are good. We need them. You need plans. You don't want to just be winging it all the time. However, like the organic Ministry, person-to-person that happens in the chairs, like that's the bread and butter of what we're doing here. There could be a fantastic show on stage, but if there's cold, unfeeling, inhospitable people in the chairs, none of this matters. What do you think would happen to our church if every single person who showed up on Sunday came thinking this? Two things. I am coming to be ministered to and I am coming to be a minister to others. Because these gifts are given to equip the saints, that is you, for the works of ministry. Imagine what that would do for our church culture, for ability to welcome in new folks, to really get connected. If you came knowing, I'm going to learn names, I'm going to learn faces, I'm going to hear stories, I'm going to invite out to lunch, I'm going to be a part of making this a people. There's a lot of that present here already. But what if every single person came every week having prayerfully said, I'm going to come to receive ministry and to give ministry. Because one of the things that consumerism says is I come to take and receive religious goods and services. And as soon as those religious goods and services are what become what I don't want them to be, I'll go somewhere else to get my religious goods and services. That's a consumeristic mentality. I come to receive ministry. Whereas rather, I think the biblical picture is the opposite of consumer, but it's one of producer, that we come to participate and engage and love and connect. And so some of you have formal roles here. You have, you know, name badges, you serve, you're wearing the kid's shirt, and that's good. But those of you who don't have, like, a formal way of serving or formal role, like, step one Box one is you begin to pray about where you're going to sit and love the people who sit next to you. If we really want to be a people who represent Christ well and love one another well, we will all embrace our participation and our responsibility to be workers and doers of ministry. I know that a lot of you right now are going and I'm not a gift to the church. And I just want to confront that in you and let you know that that is unbelief. That when you disagree about who you are with God, one of the goals should be that you change your mind and agree with God. That God creates us as individuals, and here um, he saves us. That's this language here, that this leading a host of captives has everything to do with the fact that Christ has conquered the sin and death and the powers in these heavenly places. That we were legitimately and seriously enslaved under the opposing powers— And Christ in his life, death, and resurrection has purchased us out of and conquered those things that we were once enslaved to such that we are the bounty or the plunder of Christ. I remember when I was a kid and my mom brought home the white cheddar popcorn called Pirate's Booty. And I was like, Mom, we can't eat that. We're Christians. It says booty on it. (laughs) I was 12, I think. And then she tried to explain to me, "Well, it's not like booty. It's more like when a pirate steals stuff. I'm like, oh, that's better. Yeah, let's. that's way better. Let's eat that too. But that's exactly what's going on here in this passage, that he led this host of captives, that we are the plunder of Christ, that we were enslaved to sin and death, and Christ conquered those powers in his resurrection, and he has dragged us out of Satan's camp and into his camp. And we came from being in shackles to now being this plunder. We are Jesus' booty. Excuse me for sounding blasphemic. We are the plunder. We are the gifts. We are that which Christ has stolen and conquered from the enemies, and we're now given. He causes us to be set free. He causes us to be born again. He gives us new life, and now we are on the other team, and our goal here is to love. You don't Become able to be used by God by your own merits, but rather by grace. Christ saves you, and then he calls you to get busy and involved. So we're a mess, but God heals us using us. Just do you believe that? Do you believe that you are an instrument of God given to the church to build up the body? Rest with that. Write it down. Why not? This is an all-hands-on-deck situation until Christ comes back. So he heals us. It's kind of interesting language there, heal. But this is what the, the central commandment, or the central verb I mean in this text is to equip. Um, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. And this word equip, especially in the context of this body language, we are the body of Christ. Equip is actually um, in the original a word that appears in medical journals in the first century and earlier. Uh, had to do with setting a bone. Meaning if my leg is unequipped for walking, I need to get that bone equipped for walking. It's the bone is out of whack. I need to set the bone. Remember when my little sister um, broke her arm. She was five. I was nine. She fell. She cried. It hurt. It was painful. And she was like green in the face, nauseous. You know, the all like the whole body kind of reaction to one source of pain. And eventually, like the... Crying kind of wore off and like the pain kind of like numbed up a bit and we go, like, okay, we need to take you to the hospital. And all the tears came back, no, not the hospital, not the doctors, Neil. and there's just like this fear of, I know it's broken, but I kind of just want to leave it alone for a little while because even though it's painful and it doesn't work, the pain of having the bone set is enough to avoid getting the doctor. I'd rather just have a crooked arm than undergo the pain of having my bone be set. We do that all the time as people. I know it's not how it's supposed to be, but I'd rather just stay the way I am than go through the painful process of repenting. I'd rather stay the way I am than go to therapy. I'd rather stay the way I am than get counseling. I'd rather stay the way that I am than, even though we've been tossed to and fro, pummeled by the waves, we're nauseous, we're, we know we're not healthy, the pain of getting healthy is enough to cause us to avoid trying to get healthy. So one of the things I see in this passage is that the work that we're called to do as people is to equip, and by that what I mean is with medical precision, strategically cause pain that actually heals. When your bone heals incorrectly, you have to go in and re-break the bone and put it in a cast. Not a positive experience. All of us are disordered and messy, out of shape, and it takes these little moments of pain, sometimes big moments of pain, for us to begin to walk as we're designed to walk as God's people. There's really three things that the church has understood historically of the ways in which we equip one another that is with gracious, kind, and so this isn't just, like, being harsh and shooting from the hip and saying, like, deal with it, setting the bone. Ah, I'm not giving permission for this kind of uncareful calling each other out on stuff. What I mean, like, loving, intentional pursuit of meaningful discipline. The first one is preaching of the word. Hopefully, on a semi-regular basis, when you sit under the preaching here, it hurts a little bit because you, are not, you do not have the exhaustive knowledge of Scripture, nor are you perfectly whole and healthy. And so sometimes, the preaching in the Scripture should make you go, ooh, that stung. I'm going to trust the grace of God and now live differently. I hope that happens on a semi-regular basis, that the preaching convicts you. The second way is through administering the sacraments. On a regular basis, reminding one another of the gospel, reminding yourselves, your efforts did not Earn your standing in saying, however, the work of Christ earns standing for you. So, by preaching the gospel to one another in the sacraments every single week, that's one of the ways that we equip one another. And the third way is through discipline. Now, this is like the intentional conflict, it happens organically all the time in the pew. Hey, man, I thought you said this was a priority. Hey, man, I know that you said that you wanted to honor Christ. Honor your marriage. Hey, this is this brother to brother, shoulder to shoulder in community. We're gonna ironing sharpen iron sharpening iron is kind of a violent spark causing thing. It's a healthy tension created by loving people who want us people walk in wholeness. And then also like when we as pastors formally exercise church discipline, calling one another into holiness. Hey, you say you want to follow Jesus. We want to help you follow Jesus. And so you have to throw off this sin. See, a lot of people, what happens is when you initiate church discipline, formally or informally, people just go to a different church because it hurts. It's not a positive experience. And so one of the things we actually need as people, if we're going to allow ourselves to be equipped, is to have a higher pain tolerance. And we learn to have a higher pain tolerance when we experience that God is worthy of trust and grace. And then even while I'm being called out and in conflict with, I can stand firm on the rock knowing that my identity is found in grace, not in pretending like I'm not a mess. So God uses us to heal us, that we're a mess. That's true. That should invite honest living in which you don't have to pretend to be okay when you're not okay, and none of us are okay. And God uses you to both give and receive ministry. And some of that receiving ministry is pain-inducing. Do you have the tolerance for that type of loving pain? Hope that we can. That's how we grow together. Let me pray for us. God, I'm grateful for your people who are gathered here this morning. I'm grateful that I get to be a part of these people. I'm thankful that we can be honest with the fact that we are messy sinners, that we don't have to be defensive about the fact that we need to be growing. I pray that uh, our hearts would be um, protected and made secure because of your grace. And I deeply desire that we'd be a community of people who lovingly respond to your discipline of us through your word, through the sacraments. Help us see that you are inviting us to live as we are created to live. That this healing is a return to Eden. Thank you for being a good shepherd. Amen.